Welcome everyone to the Global Village. Today I'm talking to two wonderful mothers and women who come from different generations, different countries, religions, and backgrounds. However, they do share one thing in common, and that is what no parent ever wants to experience, which is the loss of a child. So thank you so much, both of you, Auntie Jennifer and Apie, for joining us and sharing a part of your story and journey. Would you like to shortly introduce yourself? My uh, name is Innocentia Afa. I was born and raised in Ethiopia, uh, although I spent most of my summers in Ghana. I came to the United States in 2000 for college and I became a U.S. citizen in 2010. I currently live in Northern Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C., uh, with my husband, Adam, and stepdaughter. My daughter, Jaya Sakina, was born in September of this year, and uh, I work as a manager for a leadership development-focused nonprofit. I'm Jennifer, Jennifer Cargo. I'm a mother of, uh, of four children. Uh, the eldest um, just turned 41. And I have two others. Uh, the youngest is uh, 32. And I lost my, my, th my second, my third girl at the age of 34. I'm from Sierra Leone and I've uh, lived and worked abroad, uh, basically within the international community. And uh, this is a very good initiative. Thank you both uh, for that introduction. So, um, Innocentia, maybe you can start with the story of, of your child and, you know, from the moment he was born to the last day, just succinctly a little bit about how he grew up, you know, uh, you know, what kind of character he had, what he was doing in life, how, what he loved, disliked, etc. your relationship with him. Um, if you can give us a little background on that. Sure. Uh, Abdi was born in 2008. He was a healthy, happy baby. Uh, at the time of his birth, I was living in an intentional community in a rural part of southwestern Virginia. It was a very unique experience for both of us. Uh, he was doted on by his grandmother, who lived next door uh, to us at the time, and it really does take a village. I know you're fond of that term, and you know the podcast is Global Village, and it, it really is uh, is that, uh, he was a easygoing and gentle child. He loved school. He loved art and drawing. He could draw for hours at a time. He also enjoyed music and anything uh, Star Wars related. So I went through a separation from my ex-husband when Abdi was just 18 months old. So for the time he was 18 months until he was about seven years old, it was just me and him. Uh, and, um, we became quite close and we really adored one another. Uh, um, mine is Adam Asali and she, she was born March 3rd, 1983. And she's the daughter's one of my th four, four children, all daughters. And um, Adama was a very loving child. From the time she was born, she was chubby and um, happy-go-lucky, although very quiet in nature, quiet, but that happy quietness that you can find in a child. And uh, she spent most of her time in Addis Ababa where I was working. And um, at um, high school, she went from Addis Ababa to America where she did a middle school and a high school. 
And it was at, during our high school days that one of the teachers uh, discovered that she was statistic and that maybe I should move her from the school where she was to another school that could help her develop the artistic uh, uh, skills that uh, seem to have featured very prominently during high school. Lovely to hear that. I know, I, I mean, I, I met Adama a couple of times while I was traveling to New York um, for for work. And I know that she was into fashion and she was she had wanted to open her own um, factory in Sierra Leone to start designing there. I remember we were talking about that. She loved fashion. She was very fashionable. I remember that. I unfortunately never met Abdi, but I did live vicariously through Innocencia on Facebook and all his uh, wonderful, funny sayings he had uh, <laughs> every day, waking up and telling his mom things or coming back from school with stories. That was uh, fun to read, I remember. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what happened and you know uh, the process that you went through uh, with uh, Abdi? Sure. Uh, when Abdi was seven years old, we moved to Northern Virginia. He was pretty unhappy about the move. As I mentioned, we lived right next door to his to his grandmother, and that was a wonderful setup. And he was rather spoiled and loved on uh, quite a bit. But he had started to adjust. Uh, in May 2016, just as he was wrapping up his second grade year, his teacher wrote to tell me that Abdi's previously decent penmanship was deteriorating, and it was for unexplained reasons. On a trip to Target a few weeks later, I noticed he was dragging his left foot just a little, and I asked him to straighten up his walk. I just thought he was goofing off. You know, kids can, can, can be goofy like that. One weekend in late June in 2016, I noticed he was sleeping more than usual. We were getting ready to go on an outing, and I peeked my head into his room, and I noticed he was having difficulty putting on his shirt. He was having trouble putting his arm into his shirt. So I thought he was having a stroke. The urgent care doctor sent us to the ER at a larger hospital. And after several tests and an MRI, they found a tumor deep in his brain near his thalamus. So my mom flew in with me. Uh, The doctors performed surgery, uh, flew in and moved with me. I should say moved in with me. And the, the doctors performed surgery a few weeks later to do a biopsy and remove as much of it as possible. Uh, the diagnosis at that point was um, anaplastic astrocytoma. Astrocytes are, um, you know, a certain kind of brain tissue. And obviously he had a, a tumor grow, you know, that, that was the classification of the tumor. And it was a grade four, which means it was quite advanced. Uh, they were largely unsuccessful in taking out the tumor. But, and they told us that there was nothing further that they could do. And that he had about six to eight months to live. They encouraged us to enroll him in a radiation study. We were all pretty devastated. Um, We thought that we could do something for him, but it was pretty apparent that it was just too far progressed, too deep in his brain and too advanced. So we enrolled him in a radiation study at the National Institutes of Health in October to buy him some time. Post-radiation, his body just continued to get weaker and weaker and he was on a lot of steroids. We managed a trip to Disney World and Legoland in Florida with Make-A-Wish. Uh, that was in January 2017. And we were just so grateful to have the quality time together. Uh, you don't 
realize how short your time is with your child. First of all, you never ever imagine that they could go before you. And, uh, you know, you, we try not to take our kids for granted. Most of us don't, but we assume they're going to be around forever. And so we were very grateful for that time. Four months later, uh, we enrolled Abdi in hospice. And six months later, which was exactly about a year after his diagnosis, he was gone. So the whole process from when you found out to when he uh, passed away was a year exactly? Pretty much, yeah. He was he was diagnosed in late uh, Well, we found out he had a tumor um, June 28th, I believe, uh, and he passed mm-hmm. away July 8th of the following year. So it was approximately yeah. a year, which we were very lucky to have had a full year. I would say six months of that was not really quality. He was bedridden for most of the time. Uh, so yeah. the first six months was was not bad, but still rushing here and there and, and radiation and, you know, uh, healing from surgery and, you know, just taking care of a sick child, which is a full-time job and exhausting and difficult and stressful, but still moments of, of joy. I mean, like I said, he was a happy child and uh, a joyful child and he was very positive and it made all the difference for us, I think. Yeah, I remember you sharing your journey also on Facebook with us and, uh, you know, being very open about what you were going through and what Abdi was going through and how he was feeling on certain days, uh, you know, to have a burst of energy sometimes and other days not. Um, And of course, that you were able to do certain things with him that he enjoyed. Uh, But a lot of the time were hard days. And I remember you were working and you said you had to quit your job because, you know, you have to run around for appointments that are not always in the same city. Um, So it was very difficult. I remember when you were sharing that, um, that you had to give up a lot to take care of him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To clarify, I actually kept my job for the year that he was sick, but I um, took uh, unpaid leave for a portion of the time. I will mention that Friends and family were extremely generous and financially supported us throughout that whole year in many, many different ways. So I actually didn't officially leave my job completely until uh, a year after he had passed. So it, but, but it did contribute to my leaving, eventually leaving my job. Yeah. Okay. But it's good to hear that you had that support around you uh, when you needed it also. Thank you for sharing that. Auntie Jen, would you like to share? Yes. Um, in my case, Ili Adama, Adama had gone to, to fashion school. She had established herself very well in Freetown. You know, and, uh, she was just picking up when she went to France and she had just launched her business in France that um, December October of, uh, I think, 2013, and we were all there with her, you know, and then we all came home. She was there just for us to receive a phone call that she was hospitalized. That was in, 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 in January of 2013, and we flew in, and they diagnosed that she had what they called um, protein S deficiency, and, uh, but she was lucky. She came, she came through it. And we were all very happy, thinking that, you know, but then we decided that she should, she should move to, to, to New York. 
to be with her sister because we were not very sure she can now manage on her own, having suffered a stroke, although she came out of it with no uh, uh, delibitation. So she moved to New York, stayed with her sister, and she was about again to just, that was five years later after we helped her resettled, and she had just uh, launched a, a second uh, fashion line of fashion, which she was supposed to launch in 2018. And it was on the 31st of, uh, of January, the 1st of uh, February, that I uh, had this terrible knock on my door. And uh, the sister came with the husband, another friend of mine, you know, and uh, I was kind of worried what has happened. I thought my daughter really had a problem with her husband. And uh, I, I walked them up the stairs. And uh, the only thing I had was Manja telling me, Sally passed. So I, I couldn't understand. I said, what? What happened? She says, mommy, Sally passed. What do you mean Sally passed? She says, Sally passed yesterday, the 31st. You could, you could not imagine <laughs> the pain. It's, at the beginning, you could not understand what she was saying. So I sat down. My husband sat down. My friend who was with her sat. We all just sat down there. We are, we are muted for a while. And uh, so I told her, are you sure? Have they checked her again? She says, yes, mommy. It took us, it took them this time for them to call us because Sally passed in the afternoon of the 31st. And it is mm -hmm. after all they, they have taken a corpse from the house that um, they decided to call us. So it, it was kind of traumatic for us because I'd spoken to her that day, the day before, and we were talking about a, a collection and the subsequent launch relaunch of our business and uh, it, it was it was a blow to us it was a blow mm -hmm. to us and uh, and the phones never stopped ringing because those in america got to know before us so uh, apparently they they assume we would have heard by then so the phone started ringing and uh, uh, it was not easy but the good thing was there was an overwhelming support for us, that was what took us by surprise. The overwhelming support that came from those in the U.S., us in Sierra Leone, we were thinking of, okay, we need to bring the cops home. And friends, we are all around. They said, Jennifer, don't worry. We will do our best. Just tell us what you want us to do. We'll do our best to get Sally's cops to Freetown, which they did. You know, and uh, with the sister in the in the U.S., my sister, friends, and relatives really rallied around us. That is when you know what it means by the village. It takes a village. It not only takes a village to raise a tide. Sometimes it takes the village to to rally around you and give you the support that you need at such a critical moment in your life. And and that's what Sal is passing that day at that moment you know, brought to life, the, 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 the camaraderie, the, the support, you know, in all forms, cash, anything you can think of, you know, was, was made available. And it is the pain to some extent, you know, knowing that people cared and people were there to, 
to be with you on this terrible journey. Yeah, it's hard to hear it again. Um, because I remember I heard the news. Um, I was in Mali at the time, driving somewhere with a, a colleague. You know. And then I had to stop the car and, you know, because I just heard that and it was just unbelievable, like you say, you know, you, you someone your age group, um, they talked to, full of life. And then you spoke to her the day before, you know, talking about plans and it was unexpected. Um, can you tell us a little bit about more about what, uh, this deficiency did it have any effect on her body, and is this what caused her to pass? Yes, it did. Because when it happened, she had a stroke, and she was lucky. I'm telling you, we thought Sally would die, uh, died in 2013, and that's what surprised everybody. She lived five years after when the, she had that stroke, and she was hospitalized in France. And she came through it and she had to go into, into uh, therapy to, to regain the strength of her body, you know, and her mind. Because she also lost some cognitive, there was some cognitive uh, effect of, of that stroke on her speech and her understanding of things, you know. So we had to, to, to work with her. And, and that was the main reason why we had to move her to, to, to New York to be with the sister that could at least provide that support for her. And uh, this, it's a deficiency. They say it's a protein S deficiency. And uh, she was on medication, and that medication has to be given to her regularly. Uh, they, they, I know they have to monitor what they call, uh, I, I don't even know the terms, I and I, I and something, which they have to monitor. And interestingly, the I and I was stabilized just in the month. The INI was stabilized. A month after was when she passed away. It's a deficiency, I think. I don't know how it comes about, but they say sometimes either from stress or from overwork, that protein, the pro that particular protein, you know, uh, uh, you lose, you lose, it loses balance in the in the system, and uh, mm -hmm. that was the diagnosis. And um, she went to bed, according to the sister, because she was up till late that night. She went to bed because she was now having seizures. She was now having seizures, like epileptic seizures. She was having epileptic seizures because of this uh, 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 deficiency in this protein. And uh, these seizures will come and go, you know. And the sister said she overheard there was some noise in her room. And the sister was getting ready to go for on mission. She works for the public broadcasting service in New York. She was going on mission. She said she overheard some noise in the sister's room. She went, Sally was like sleeping. So she just ignored her, packed her bag and went on mission. It was Sally's boyfriend who did not hear from her all morning and all afternoon who raised concern that something has to be gone with Sally for somebody to go look for her. Um, they, of course, they had to climb through the, the, the incinerator, the staircase. So the, the sister's boyfriend went to look for her. That's when she dis he discovered that Sally had passed in her sleep. So, uh, so her sister was not there, left and came back to discover her. She had to her. come back. She had already, she had already gone to, to Cal North Carolina. 
She left that morning because she had this noise. She went to see her sister, but she was sleeping. She said, say, mommy, she was sleeping. So I just ignored. Maybe that time she had gone into seizure when she had the noise, but then she didn't realize it, you know, and uh, she went away on, 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 on mission. It was while she was on mission, the boyfriend didn't hear from Sally and the boyfriend raised concern that I've not heard from your sister. And she now called her boyfriend to say, please go check on my sister. When I left, she was sleeping. You know, I checked on her and I found that she was sleeping, you know. And uh, yeah, that's how it happened. And uh, she had to come back. In the meantime, the boyfriend, her boyfriend took over. She came back very late in the evening because she had just arrived in North Carolina when... uh, she got the news. So she had to, to book a flight back to to New York. They were living in New York at the time. Yeah, it has not been easy. You know, especially because you were not there either. And I think because you were so far away, it was probably, you know, that knock on your door, like you said, and the worst news any parent uh, will ever hear in their life, I think. People talk about premonition. And I want, Sally's death made me to believe in premonition. Because that day that it happened, I just had lunch. I was having lunch. And on my table, there was this shadow, tall shadow that just passed by me. And I remember telling my house, my cook, says, something strange is happening. Eh? I just saw this shadow pass by me. And she says, oh, that has to be somebody. Somebody close to you is dying, mommy. That's the, they used to call me mommy. And I said, you should say, yes, I'm telling you. He said, because for you, I felt it. Eh? I felt the shadow. I felt the, the presence of this person passing through me, by me. Okay. And I, yes, and I, I, had, I, I was going to do a, 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 what we call a shobi. And I picked up the fabric to go sew. And I went, I drove like 15 minutes. 15 minutes into me driving, there was this sadness that just consumed me in the car. Mm. And I had myself saying to myself, go back home, go back home. And I came back home. And I came home (laughs) and I slept. I slept like nobody's business. I just came home, slammed on my bed and I slept off. It was like 11 o'clock at night, I woke up. But then I will still have not had the news. But I think that's what the same time Sally passed away in America. And I got that interesting experience in my life that afternoon here in Freetown. Wow. I just got goosebumps, like my whole body shivered. I think because, you know, you're the mother, you have that connection with your child, no matter where they are, you feel them. And that was, that was your sign, like you say, that's unbelievable. And then what time did they come knocking at your door then? Was it in the middle of the night? No, it was in the morning. It was like 2 o'clock in the morning. The next day, the 1st of February, in the morning. Mm. That was when they came knocking at my door. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You know, Sansa, did you have premonition as well? Or how did that go with you? You know, I, I think I did, although... Nowadays, I, I don't know what to make of the experience. Uh, when Abdi was four, we were at a a fair, uh, a local community 
fair and uh, a stranger came up to me, a woman I'd never met, never seen before and commented in passing about how beautiful my son was. She got a concerned look on her face and she said, but he's very sick. He needs help. He's very sick. And she disappeared into the crowd and I looked at myself. Mm -hmm. He looked healthy to me and, uh, you know, he, he had these uh, unexplained fevers that he would get every couple of months uh, for two and three days, very high fevers. And I, we later discovered what the condition was. Uh, it's called PFAPA. Uh, and other than that, he was an healthy, he was a healthy child. So, and he was healthy at the moment the woman saw him. So I really wasn't sure what she was talking about and I didn't know what to get help for him for. And mm-hmm. uh, I just proceeded to forget about, you know, just blocked it out because I didn't know what to do. I mean, you know, I, when she said he was very sick, I, I don't know what that meant. Now, no. I think there's a chance that he could have been born with this tumor or it developed early, much, much earlier than we thought. And it slowly grew over time. It's very possible. Um, I mean, animals have been trained to sense and smell um, all kinds of things. Uh, I, I think, I, I believe I even heard there are dogs that can, you know, smell you and, and, and can tell if you have cancers, certain kinds of cancers have been trained for certain things. So it's very possible this woman had a sixth sense about this tumor. Mm-hmm. I have no clue. And, um, you know, I, I don't really get anywhere by thinking about it. I, I, I do find it very no. curious, but that's about it. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about the, the last day? That you're with Apti? Well, it was different experience than Auntie Jen. Yeah. yeah, it was very different. I mean, he was a child. Um, like I mentioned, he was in hospice. Uh, he had stopped eating and uh, pretty much moving. He had a very bad seizure a month or so before he passed away. So he was in a vegetative state for the most part, but still aware because he could move his lips. I, I knew he could hear me. Uh, but he had gone blind, and uh, like I said, he was he was bedridden. So it was very hard to see him like that. Um, and yeah. you know, we were almost. I just wanted him to, to to sense some relief from from that from what he was going through. And he was on morphine and Ativan and a whole bunch of of medications to help him be comfortable and relax. And so. I said the last 20, 48 hours, I mean, his breathing changed all the telltale signs that a person has. There's a wonderful book I read um, to help me prepare for the last stages of dying. It talked about dying in general. It's written by a hospice nurse, but she um, talked about the last, you know, moments or, or the last few days and this breathing changed. So mm-hmm. I knew once the death rattle started, I knew we didn't have much time and, um, we t- we were working in shifts because you know my mother was sleeping on the floor next to him. I had to sleep. I had been up with him all day, and I, I needed to sleep, so I slept. And we could tell things were getting closer to the end. And at uh, you know four a.m. in the morning or so, I, I woke up and uh, went to sit by him and held his hand, and we had some gentle music religious music playing in the background and 
he continued to, to sh- his breathing continued to get shallower and shallower and, until he finally passed at around five o'clock or 530 uh, in the morning. And uh, I mean, it was, it was surreal. I mean, the whole thing is surreal. I think life is just surreal, yes. but yeah. it was um, hard to imagine, but at the same time, there was a tremendous sense of relief. And I remember, um, you know, our imam telling us it's okay if we felt relief because it was such a difficult time. And he was finally free mm-hmm. from the prison that his body had body basically become a prison for him. So he was finally yeah. free from that. And so that was a relief, I think, for all of us. Yeah. Do you think it's possible in words, both of you, to explain what goes through your body um, when, well, for Auntie Jen, when she hears it, but for you, appear when you you're holding your son and you know breathe helping him through his last breaths knowing that he's going you know um, are there words that can describe anything that you're feeling i think there are uh, i will try anyway and it's i had personally never seen a person die before so that was my first experience and it happened to be my child which made it i think extra difficult because it even though i'd read books about it you know sitting in the room holding the person seeing the person is a very different experience from watching it on television or hearing about it or having somebody else tell you about it so it was just i mean i think shock really uh, just a deep level deep state of shock uh, and it just doesn't feel real, honestly. Uh, I mean, and beyond that, I think you kick into gear because your adrenaline kicks in. And for us, it was about, we gave ourselves about an hour to just collect ourselves and, and just be there with his body. But then you realize very, very quickly after a person passes, your world feels like it stopped. It just feels like everything has stopped, but the world around you keeps going. And sometimes it it feels like it keeps going even faster than it did before uh, your loved one passed. So, you know, it's like, my goodness, we have to call people. We have to, you know, make sure that we wash the body before, you know, it starts to get stiff. We have to make arrangements for the body to be transported. And, you know, when somebody is sick for a long time and it's when it's expected, we had done a lot of the preparation ahead of time. And so we had that benefit. I think it's very different when somebody dies unexpectedly, you know, to make those calls and to to kick into action and kick into gear, so to speak. So we kind of had outlined everything, everything was ready to go. And so then in fact, throwing ourselves into the, into the, the action uh, was a way of dealing with the shock and a way of using our energy. Auntie Jen, can you relate to what Innocencia was saying? Yes, I can. There's a numbness for me when it's first, there's a numbness that happens in you. And that numbness stays there for a while. You are numb, you are in disbelief. You know, you, you're questioning everything. You're questioning, especially in the circuit of Sally, we're questioning everything. Did we do enough? You know, did we, all of, everything that has happened, you begin to question, you question and question. 
you know, and uh, like Innocentia said, the world around you does not stop, you know. People came, and especially we are, us in Africa, you know, people believe that with death there should be celebration, you know, and what what was people asking about cooking, you know, I remember somebody said, what are we cooking? I said to myself, how can people ask me what we are cooking at this time of my loss? But I, I, I realized that life has to go on, you know, and uh, we had to make preparation for the burial. Um, as I said, friends came in very helpful. Preparation to get the cops first. Well, the cops to the, to the, to the funeral home was done without our, our knowledge because all of that was done before they, they called us. But now we had to step in, even with the help of friends, to get the cops to Freetown, you know, because we had planned that we wanted the burial in Freetown. There's a numbness, there's a numbness, I'm telling you. And I have experienced death at several levels. I've, I've experienced death of a mother when I was just leaving school. I've experienced death of my brothers. I've experienced death of my father. The death of a child is a different type of death. I'm telling you, the feeling is completely different. It's not the same as a father a sister, a brother, it's, it's, it's just different. There's the numbness. And that numbness, for, for some reason, I felt it around my belly. There's a numbness just around my midriff. And I remember constantly rubbing, rubbing my, my stomach, you know, because that's where I felt. That was where the pain was. The pain was around my midriff and, and around my shoulder. But there's a numbness that, that, that comes with it. Uh, and the tears flow, and eh? the tears just flow. The mm. tears will just flow, you know. During the day, you can take it, but when everybody have left, everybody leaves you. <laughs> there is no sleep, no sleep whatsoever. You try your best to sleep, you cannot sleep, you know. And I remember they have to give me sleeping tablet. At one point, the doctor says you have to sleep, so they gave me sleeping tablet. It didn't work. So they gave me a higher dose of sleeping tablet. At least they said, have enough sleep to receive the cops. Because at that time now, the cops, were, the cops was to arrive in like two days. So the doctor insisted that I should sleep before the cops arrived. So yes, for me, there is a, as I speak, I could feel that numbness. You know, there's a numbness that comes with the death of a child. You are just numb. And... Uh, you are lost of words, what to say. People console you, you hear them, yes. <laughs> but whatever they are saying, does it sink in? For me, it was not sinking in. It was just this feeling of emptiness that, that consumed me. I want to uh, agree completely with Auntie Jennifer. That's exactly right. Everything you've said, I think I can agree with as well. And you know, here in the West, they've, you know, made it very clinical and they have the quote unquote five stages of grief and the numbness is what's coming with denial. And because you can, you can, it's something that you never imagined. And uh, so there's, there's denial, even though you were there in the room when it happened, but it, it just takes a while for it to sink in. And then there's anger. And then you want to, you know, bargain. There's the bargaining phase where you do what auntie said is you question everything and you think about ways in which you could have affected the outcome and you know 
there's that whole uh, situation and then depression and then, you know, eventually some, some form of acceptance. But what they forget to tell you is that these don't, they're not linear. So they take, uh, they're not linear at all. You, you could start out with depression and then, you know, go back to denial and then accept it for a few, you know, for a little bit and then go back to bargaining. And, you know, so it, it just, it's, it's quite a, quite a mess of a situation. And that is something that I uh, experienced myself. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing those five steps. I, I, I heard about that not too long ago. And I, I, I just can't even imagine. I mean, it's your child. So it's probably a piece of you who goes with that person, with your child. But um, that numbness stays probably forever, doesn't it? Yeah. I think so. In the form of, in the form of just, you just sit there and, you know, it's happened and you just tell yourself, I still can't believe it happened. It's been six years, seven years, three years, four months, whatever, however long it's been, it's still you still tell yourself, wow, I, I can't believe this happened. Or, or you're, you refer to your child in the past tense and you catch yourself and you can't believe that you're referring to your child in the past tense. Uh, or, mm-hmm. you know, people are going about their business and he just becomes a footnote in the story. Like we're all going to be eventually, but the matter mm-hmm. is that you are conscious of the fact that he's or she has become a footnote and the story instead of the main character, you know? So mm. that's always there and I, it never goes away. And I think personally, you know, you do have a lot of psychosomatic effects. I, you know, a lot went through hair loss. I had the opposite problem that auntie did. I slept, overslept and, and slept. I couldn't stop sleeping. And that's linked to the depression. Uh, I had no depression. trouble sleeping. Um, and when auntie talked about the tears flowing, it's not just tears flowing. I don't know if you experienced this auntie, but there's, you weep. I mean, when people talk about weeping in the Bible or like biblical yeah, weeping yeah. or religious weeping, it, you do, I didn't know what that was, you know, going, I mean, growing up in Ethiopia, grief is, uh, when we experienced a lot of grief and there was a lot of wailing and, and, and beating of chests and shaving of heads and, you know, people went crazy with grief and so but that I observed that from a distance and and it wasn't something that was uh that I experienced personally you know myself or something that we did in our family as much so but when it happens to you at least that was my reaction is you understand what weeping is (laughs) weeping is different from crying it's 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 a completely different thing the tears come but there's yes it's coming from a, a place that's so deep inside you that you didn't even know you had, you know, you didn't even know those, those kinds of tears and that kind of emotion could come from you. And that was my experience. Yeah. That's too. There's weeping. Yeah. The weeping, the weeping. <laughs> That's when I tell you, I feel it a guy in my stomach. Yes. Is that weeping that, that, that comes. That's why I said it's different. Losing a child is completely different from losing a father, a brother, it's so different, eh? The feeling is just different. And uh, I've gone through all types of grieving, but this losing a child uh, is a, it's a different type. And um, you never stop grieving. Grieving, I think, is a long-term process. You know, you grieve at different times. You grieve, um, well, maybe it's not grieving. It's now the, 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 the memory. The memory and things that trigger 
there are different trigger points that will trigger something that flashes back and uh, and uh, you say oh yes she's dead but she has left with me these memories that that i hold on to and it is these memories that 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 are pleasant sometimes although sometimes they're not very pleasant not pleasant in the sense that you think oh she could have she could have done this had she been alive because this is where i know she wanted to be and what she wanted to do so there is a grieving uh, that is continuous and there is and the, the grieving turns into memory flashes of memories these flashes of memories they come and go you know yeah you know when 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 i heard for both of course you you feel pain uh you know for the person and what they're going through but i feel like once i had my children that's when i understood the um the heartbreak it could cause not no i'm not saying i f- i feel your pain at all because i'm not i've not experienced it but i i understood more how painful it could be because it's your child like you said auntie you've experienced all kinds of loss even your own mother which is extremely difficult for many people no matter what age you are and what age you lose your mother everyone will tell you that but you said like when it's your child you feel a different kind of pain and loss and i think when i had my children i can understand when you say that you know when you don't have children i think it's more difficult to understand that but can you can you share um a little bit also for other parents who are, are going through this or have gone through this how you have dealt or who how you are dealing because grief does not end how you are dealing with your grief and what tips you have for other parents well i i'm thank you for the question i think it's uh helpful to remember that the grieving is a lifelong process uh and the memories never never cease and and thank god for that because i think after some time you do get those sweet memories it I think it's always laced with some pain but you know you do you do have an opportunity to remember the beauty and the joy that, that your child brought into your life which is which is a blessing i would say just to breathe i mean as you know immediately after you almost forget to breathe which is why i think you know auntie was saying you're physically you feel it and you feel it in your gut you feel it in your chest you almost forget to breathe i had um all kinds of physical responses to grief not everybody does but i did and you know i had severe panic attacks one i didn't even know what it was it just came upon me in the middle of the night i was actually hospitalized so but you know you have to remember to breathe it's it's a simple life-giving uh action but it's almost as if your body forgets what to do and so you, i would say just uh, you know breathe and uh learn how to breathe properly and keep breathing and take deep breaths because that's really how you uh you know you manage and you know you have to be kind to yourself um give yourself the space to acknowledge the loss and you know give yourself permission to feel the pain because i think because the world is going on and you know you're not the only one who's gone through this loss millions of people have lost children and and millions of billions of people have lost loved ones but it does feel like you're very alone in the moment uh so you know while my husband would tell me all the time you know 
feel what you need to feel, but understand there's a proportion to everything and understand that you're not alone. And, uh, you know, so I think breathing is, is important. Remember to breathe through it all. I would say the second thing is to stay connected and engaged. Uh, this is very hard because, again, it feels like your world has stopped. One thing that was tough for me was that uh, I think people around me sometimes didn't know what to say. And, you know, I got tremendous support, just like Auntie, in every yeah. possible way, tremendous support. And I don't think I would be, you know, here speaking in the way that I'm speaking without that support. I really truly owe it to my friends and, and my family and, and our communities that, that helped us through. Uh, but, you know, people don't know what to, so it's up, really the burden then becomes on you to stay connected with other people, even though you think it should be the other way around. Uh, because people will, will, some people will disappear from your life because they just don't know how to relate to you anymore. Some people will stay in touch with you, but won't know what to say. They really just, they're, they're at a loss for words, just like you are. And sometimes you can interpret that as them not caring, but really it's just, they just don't know what to say. And also in my case, the, my, my son's life had come to an end, but his friend's parents, you know, were celebrating their children and their children's accomplishments and, you know, first days of school and last days of school and birthdays and all kinds of things. And, it's awkward. I mean, do they invite me to the, to come to these events? Do they include me? Do they not include me? Will including me, you know, make me sad? I mean, it just creates all of these awkward situations, you know, and everything, it's all about, they all have good intentions and they all have good thoughts. It's just very difficult for them to, to uh, relate to me. And I just want to tell people, don't take that personally. Uh, it's okay. The people just don't know what to do. They're they're in similar situation to you in that sense. Uh, but staying connected and engaged um, will be helpful. You know, just just allow yourself to stay connected with people. Uh, you know, stay active. You know, take a class. Spend time with animals. Stay in touch with friends. People want to be there for you. They just don't know how. I took a personal development workshop that was life altering. Uh, you know, it really does feel the world like the world has stopped, but it hasn't. It hasn't. And I think that you have to acknowledge that. And then finally, changing your environment and traveling and making new memories. This is obviously a lot harder during the pandemic, but overall and in general, uh, changing my environment was essential to healing and moving forward. And so I encourage everybody to do the best they can with that and create also to create new memories and the new memories will nourish and sustain you uh, because without them, you keep looking back and you're going to look back anyway, but you know, the new memories allow you to look forward and to have things to look forward to and to have new memories to nourish you and, and to cherish. Well, I love that. Very good tips. Auntie Jen, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so the only thing I can say, I don't think I will be able to advise uh, another mother in terms of what to do, because I think it is so personal. Grieving is so personal that people grieve in their own way. And I think what, what I would rather be is be the supportive person, you know, the supportive person, because like us, where we come from, we know the kinds of supports people will need when they, they have a loved one pass away especially a child. 
just making sure I'm able to, to take food to the house, being able to be there and create some, a little bit of laughter for the person, you know, being able, if there are good stories we know about the child, just say those good stories. But for me, I don't think I'm in a position, for my own experience, eh, to be able to tell somebody, this is how you grieve, or this is what you should do, or this is how you should handle it, because it's so, so personal. And I think what is more important is, like uh, Innocentia said, is to embrace all the supports that you have around you. Embrace and appreciate them. That is key to, 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 to living, you know, through such a traumatic situation. Because people will come and provide different ways of support. Some, they just come and sit there with you. Some will send you water. Some will send you this. Some will send you... Uh, uh, cards, uh, you know, sympathy cards. They do it in different ways. And for each one, it's for you to just embrace them and find meaning in them that people care. And it is their caring attributes that they are displaying. I think that in itself helps you when you appreciate the gestures that people do around you when you are grieving. I think you also learn, Auntie, I totally agree with what you've said and, and, and I concur. I think having been through this experience, I now know what to say and what to do and how to help somebody else who's grieving in a way that I didn't know prior to my loss. So that's been a, a, a good outcome, I think, learning how to support somebody the best way. It's funny, some people are like, well, how, you know, here in the West, you know, people say, well, well let, me, let me know if you need anything. And, you know, sometimes that feels so preposterous. You're exhausted, you're bewildered, you're, you're beyond stressed. You don't have the capacity sometimes to say, this is what I need, or can you help me do this? That's when you need the global village, the community, you know, to come in and just like Auntie said, drop food off and, and send those cards and, and just be there in all the ways that they're there, you know, not necessarily ask you, well, you know, let me know or, what can I do? You know, those questions mean nothing when you're going through uh, this kind of trauma. I think people kicking in and, and, and uh, being very active and, and thoughtful and kind uh, is, is wonderful. And yes, appreciate every moment of it. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, like you said, you know, since I think it's very important that many people want to do something, but just don't know how, and maybe thinking like I would, from my perspective anyway, okay, I want to help, but I don't know how to help. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to trigger her. I don't want to bring up things that maybe she doesn't want to think about. You know, it's awkward for us, like you say, because we haven't gone through it and we don't know what kind of support we can give, or, you know, we don't want to say or do the wrong thing. Do we invite you, not invite you, etc. So I think there's a good, moment to maybe share what are the things that we should never say to a grieving parent never do and what should we do and how can we show up for grieving parents <laughs> well i think that it, it, it like auntie said this is such a personal journey and each person goes through it you know in a slightly different way i think there are commonalities uh you know, between grieving parents. But in my case, you know, I was in my mid to late 30, mid 30s. And my mother said to me, you'll never find peace or joy until you have another child. 
And that kind of pressure and, and stress was so difficult for me to, to take in. And other people, my physician recommended it. Uh, you know, I actually found it offensive. Uh, it wasn't comforting. And it made me think that Abdi could be replaced. Also, pregnancy and postpartum and childbirth, all of it is life-altering and intense. These are light, intense life choices. It was scary to imagine a roller coaster of experiences serving as an antidote to my immensely painful problem. So, in short, it may be appropriate to encourage your friend or family member to have children if they're at an appropriate age, but it's more important to be sensitive about uh, when and, and when when you tell them something like that. So, so I think just being being sensitive uh, is important. But beyond that, it's just important to just be there. You know, sometimes you don't have to say a lot. There was a friend that would send me a heart, uh, you know, an emoji, a heart emoji every few days. And that was it. There were no words attached to it. But when that heart emoji popped up on my text message on my screen, on my phone, it just, I just knew the person was thinking about me and, and directing love towards me. And that's all that needed to be said. That little act was so huge. Uh, so just be there for the person. Sometimes there's not a lot to say. There's, there's very little that one can say. Uh, but I just think showing your presence is fine. A couple of months ago, several months, six, six months ago, I would say now, I was getting ready for my, my daughter's birth and I was cleaning out a closet and all the cards that people had given me when my son passed away, you know, kind of fell out of a box. And I actually sat down and read every single one of them again and appreciated them just as much, if not more. Um, Auntie Jen, do you have any um, advice on what we should not tell a grieving parent? You know, you have more children. I, 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 you know, Cynthia had lost her only child then. Uh, so people thought saying having another child would be helpful, which it's not. But um, how about for you? What do you think are things that we should never say to a grieving parent? I think never tell a grieving parent not to cry or stop crying. Mm. I think we should not do that. Other than that, we should help them just rub their back, rub their shoulder, and let them understand that crying is part of grieving and it's acceptable. And so I don't like when people say, don't cry, stop crying. You know, let her cry. You know, let her cry and um, helps help soothe the, the, the crying, you know, help talk to her. And also, those for me, that is one thing I will advise people. Don't tell a grieving mother or a grieving person, don't cry. You know, yeah. let them cry. And she's not it's shameful to cry because it's like it's a shame to cry. It's like you are not strong when you cry. Crying, crying itself is strength. It's, it's, it's yes. an inner strength to, to let all that grief come out. All that yeah. emotion come out, you know, and uh, it shows that you are human, that you're a human being and uh, it hurts. And uh, crying, crying for me is good. I, I would never tell a grieving person, don't cry. I've had people tell people, don't cry. And I said, how, how can you say that? Don't cry. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, auntie, my, 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 my husband would cry along with me. And, uh, I think for a time he certainly said, he said, don't, uh, he would encourage me to cry and to let it out. 
I think as time went by, he would caution me and say, you know, I understand, you know, you want to let this out and, and that's fine. But I think it would hurt him to hear me crying. It was, you know, it was very painful for him to see me in so much pain. And then I think after about a year, you know, because the crying does subside at some point. And it was funny, right before it's, it started to subside, that's when he started cautioning me and, and saying, you know, everything in, in proportion, you know, it, he actually told me, not, he didn't say don't cry, but he would say, you know, if it got to the, if the crying led to weeping, because <laughs> they're two different things, then I think he would say, okay, the time for weeping is, is over now. He's like, you can cry, but don't, don't do the weeping. The weeping was too painful for him to, to hear. And it, it, I actually, in retrospect, I got, I got upset with him. But then in retrospect, I understood, you know, in order to move forward, you know, the weeping does have to come to an end. Uh, the crying will go on, sometimes for a lifetime, it feels. But that, that intense weeping, you know, because, then he, because the weeping for him was a, a sign of despair. And he said, we, we do not despair. We're all going there. We're all, you know, on our way there. So it, the weeping, he said, is to me, it's a sign of despair. And he's like, there's no need to despair. Uh, you know, you can be sad, but don't despair. So these are very subtle. I agree with you. These are very subtle differences. Uh, but overall, I, I do agree with your, your uh, advice about letting a parent just cry. And it makes other people very uncomfortable to cry in front of them. Oftentimes we cry alone, but there are moments where, you know, you cry in front of others. Just, just the other day, I dropped some of my artwork off, uh, my son's artwork off at a friend's um, studio. And she looked at the art and immediately started crying. And she made me cry. It's been three and a half years. And, you know, there was for a split second, I just told myself, oh, gosh, just stop crying. You know, it's just going to get worse or, you know, and I had to be gentle with myself and say, if, if I need to take 10 minutes and just cry, let me just cry and not judge myself for wanting to cry, even though it's been, you know, three and a half years or, you know, whatever. So, yeah, just being gentle with ourselves and, and kind and patient with ourselves is an important part of this journey. Yeah. Does it? Yeah. I think, you know, you say an important thing. I mean, you said three and a half years, two years, five years. It can be 20 years and you're still allowed to cry, I think. Right. I mean, yes. You know, feel that pain or you think of a memory that just my mom, when she talks about her parents, she still cries. You know, her father passed away before I was born more than 40 years ago. She still cries when she talks about her father, you know, the memories. So I think it doesn't matter how long they're gone for. It's just um, allowing yeah. it, but not going to that despair, weeping, like you say. Did faith mm -hmm. help you deal for both of you? We didn't talk about faith, but did faith in any way play a role in, in dealing with the grief? For me, yes. Well, I, I, like I said, death is inevitable. As I, I, Sally's death made me coin the phrase. The uncertainty of the certainty. Death is so certain. I like but that. But it's the timing, mm -hmm. the timing, mm -hmm. the how that is uncertain. So mm -hmm. Sally's death, you know, and faith, that's where my faith and reality, I think there was a crossroad between my faith and reality. 
my faith tells me death is certain, you know, but my, the reality tells me it is the uncertainty that you have to cope with. It is the uncertainty that you have to deal with, the timing that it, that it occurred. For me, yes, there's a lot of faith that helped me to cope, you know, with, with, with the passing of my child, that death is so certain. And I remember somebody who came to visit during Sally's death, who said that there was this son who asked the father, Father, when does someone die? When does someone have to die? And the father said, okay, I will answer that question. First of all, go to the cemetery. Just walk around the cemetery for one hour and just write down the, the ages of people who have died. And then when you come back, you tell me those ages. And so the, the child came back and said, oh, I found a two-month-old child. I found a six-year-old child. I found a 70-year-old person. I found a 90-year-old person. Then the father said, well, that's the answer. You can die at any time, at any age. So, for, for, you know, so that's the, death is so certain. It is the uncertainty of the timing and how. To answer the question, Georgie, about faith, it, we could devote a podcast just to that journey, at least in my case, <laughs> yeah. an entire podcast. But I'll make yeah. it very brief and say that, yes, faith certainly helped because when the depression kicked in and the antidepressants weren't working and the despair kicked in and you, at least in my case, I didn't feel like I really had much to live for. I think my identity was so wrapped up in being a mom and, uh, you know, that was taken away from me. I had one, one son. So, you know, I just kind of, it's easy to just give up and to disengage and to disconnect and to just unplug from life, so to speak. And something has to kick in to keep you going because it is a lot of people do unplug and disengage and disconnect and stop living or stop being alive. And uh, my husband said to me, you know, you, even though it had been a couple of years after my son's passing, he said, you're not, you're not alive. You're, you're not yet alive. He said, you're living, but you're not alive. And so for me, faith is the thing that allows you to re-engage and gives you the strength to jump back in the game, so to speak. And uh, that's when... That's when I think my faith kicked in. Uh, you know, I think sometimes in the darkness of all of this, people, people decide to end their own lives. I mean, parents decide to end their own lives. And, you know, it certainly crossed my mind because the pain is so intense and you don't see anything at the end of the tunnel. And I think that your faith is what allows you, however you define it, by the way, I mean, in a religious or non-religious sense, I mean, there's so many definitions for faith, but um, the that is what allows you i think to to uh come back from the edge and to see the bigger picture and uh understand that that certainty that auntie was referring to and that like we're all on that journey and it's just a matter of time and what i learned was that the term for there is actually a term for a parent who's lost a child i didn't know it existed oh. i mean, have the term, you know, widow or widower, we have, uh, yeah. you know, an orphan for somebody who's lost their parents. It was only after I lost my son, I realized the term for a parent, male or female, 
who has lost a child as Viloma, V-I-L-O-M-A-H. And it's from Sanskrit. And it means against a natural order because even mm. though a lot of people lose their children, it is considered to be unnatural. And upon closer inspection, yes, it is unnatural, but if it was so unnatural, why, why do so many lose, lose their children? It, it's just life. But that's the term, Viloma. And um, that was my part, my journey with faith was getting rid of identity because I felt like identity was what was preventing me from moving forward. I identified so closely with being a mother that all of a sudden, when that wasn't a part of the, the story anymore, because, you know, we're all in this, this, this story together. I didn't know how to pick up and move on, uh, uh, you know, from, from not actively being a mother anymore. And I think coming from a traditional and, and cultural, you know, society, we place a lot of importance in motherhood and our identity is very much wrapped up in, in, in being a mom and all the things that go with being a mom and your place in society and, you know, your acceptance in society. And when that is taken away from you, I think for me, my faith helped me question what identity is. What is identity and, and, and why is it important? And, and what happens when it gets taken away from you? And, and can you form another identity? And all the questions that go with identity. And ironically, understanding that there's a term like Viloma, you know, and, and my ability to identify with that was helpful. So that's the irony is you try and get rid of identity because, you know, you, from, from, a, from a spiritual sense anyway, because you find that, you know, clinging to something that is so transitory that can be taken away from you at any time that was fabricated to begin with, uh, you know, the concept of identity, and then yet finding comfort in a small world, small word like Viloma, you know, that somebody took the time to come up with a term that you can identify with that you, that, that you uh, find truth in. I just wanted to share, to share that. Yes, thank you for sharing that and also for sharing that knowledge. I had no idea that term existed because I, I, I also thought there was no term for that because it's so unnatural and or should not be happening. You know, a child should not leave before the parent. So thank you for sharing that information. Um, thank you both for sharing this difficult journey. Let's end on a little bit of a positive note. And can you share how you would like Abdi to be remembered, how you like Adama to be remembered. I remember with Adama, sorry, just uh, one year you 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 said we really celebrated her in back home in Sierra Leone. I know because I was in touch with the sisters who shared that that with me. And I remember a year later, I had a dream uh, about her. We were we had this huge party uh, that we organized for her, and she came and she was wearing this like she was like the queen of the ball, you know. And uh, I remember that so vividly. And immediately the next morning I wrote to her sister and I said, this is what I dreamt. And she said, that's so strange because another friend had this kind of the same type of dream, you know? Um, so I think it's a sign. I believe in, in spiritual things and signs. And um, that was a positive thing, I think, that I had shared with the sister. So any last words for both of you? Well, for me, Sally, Sally was just this uh, buoyant person. So, you know, I, I, one way I'm remembering Sally is just around my house. I've just done, I redid the garden. 
I just did the garden and I'm around looking for beautiful flowers because I know she likes beautiful things around her. So I'm doing the garden and uh, I'm, and uh, I want, um, that's what I'm doing to, to keep her memory alive, you know? And um, the good, the interesting thing, we were thinking of keeping her memory and then something just pops up. Uh, there is some work that has been done on the icons of Sierra Leone. And for some reason, the Sierra Leone community thought Sally is an icon because of the work she did in the fashion industry, the way she broke fashion into Sierra Leone. So she's been remembered, you know, in that, in that book. It's a coffee table book, which has just come out. It's on, it's on uh, Amazon. Amazon just started selling it just this weekend, you know. So, so while we are thinking of how to keep our memory alive, <laughs> you see how God works? Uh, uh, the memory has just been put alive through a book that has been published. Thank you for sharing that. That's that's beautiful. I think uh, our children were at very different ages and stages of life when they passed. Uh, Abdi, you know, being just nine, I think nine years old at the time of his passing, he didn't have a huge contribution to society. Uh, I mean, he meant the world to us, obviously. Uh, in the little ways that he contributed through his sense of humor, through his, his art, both our children were, were artists. I often wonder how Abdi would have contributed to the global community with his art. I think he could have gone very far with it in many different ways. Uh, but, you know, just a, he, was, he was a simple child in some respects, joyful and an artist. And, and I think that's how I always remember him. Uh, going forward, I I just thought of something else. You know, um, brain tumors are are not very well understood, and there's not a lot of research and funding that's going towards them. They're also a little on the rare side. So, I think one way that friends can help other parents who have children that have died from you know, illnesses is to support foundations or nonprofits that are dedicated to to resolving or or, or finding cures for these illnesses. Uh, that's that's one way to keep the person's memory alive. There are lots of ways, but I've I've now joined a, a foundation uh, and uh, to raise awareness about about the issue. So, um, but anyway, in 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 wrapping that up, I I, I just. Yeah, I remember his creativity and, and his, his, his joyful spirit and his bravery, too. A friend of mine said to me, you know, my, my son, her son is in, her, in his 20s. She said, I, I sense relief, you know, sadness, but also relief in, in a very strange way for my son because he's not very brave. Your son was so brave. I, you know, it, it's, it's incredible that he managed to to face death with such bravery. I don't think my son would have managed to do the same. He just doesn't have the same bone, so to speak. And I disagreed with her, but my son was very brave and taught me how to face death in a brave way. And I will always be grateful to him for that. Thank you both so much for sharing that. And, and, you know, I never met Abdi, unfortunately, but I know from the stories you were sharing that he had a very bright light and touched everybody that he knew or that met him. Um, that they, you know, they loved him immediately. And I think that's very special. Um, and it probably went further than you imagine, you know, to touch more people than you imagined. 
Um, so I'd like to thank both of you so much for taking the time to share and be open and sharing a part of your souls and hearts and stories. And I'm sure it's going to help a lot of people who are grieving, not only for loss of a child, but for loss of, uh, you know, a loved one. And, um, I, you know, I truly appreciate it. I learned a lot from this talk and, and I know it will help a lot of, a lot of people. So I appreciate it very much. And I thank you both. And I wish you both, um, uh, you know, a lot of love and happiness in uh, the coming year, 2021. Hopefully it will be much better than this past 2020 as well.